Good morning, everyone. This is a beautiful day, and nothing makes it more beautiful than God's sunshine and beautiful music. Don't you agree? I hope you have a holy and happy Sabbath day today. Our scripture reading today is in Nehemiah 8, 1-3 and 8-10. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And all who were able to, uh, he read it aloud from daybreak till noon, as he faced square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen. Wow. Oh, I tell you, last week I talked about rememberings and other sacred doings. And, you know, what's really interesting about the sermonic process is if you can give a two-minute summary, one is led to ask the obvious question, why can't you give a two-minute sermon? Uh, Wouldn't that just be a whole lot better? We can experiment with that form sometime, if you like. In fact, uh, on one of those days when we have... Uh, ordinations and baptisms and all that sort of thing, maybe that's what I'll I'll try to uh, do, a three-minute sermon. But the summary of last week's sermon goes something like this. Remembering has two components to it. First, it's the command we encounter in the Ten Commandments itself to remember Shabbat, to remember the Sabbath day, to remember sacred time. And that sacred time memorializes two events in Exodus and Deuteronomy. That sacred time memorializes creation and in Deuteronomy, and I think more importantly, memorializes redemption. And that's what's really apt for us today when we think about uh, the commandments and that memorialization. So often I think we're creation focused rather than redemption focused in that. But Deuteronomy 5 is redemption focused. And in remembering, we also have countless other commands to remember in Scripture. And the very act of remembering is one of recalling a sacred occasion or event, an act of God in our lives, a memory of the perception of presence. And so we are invoking again a past event or activity or sense into the present in an exercise of knowing in some current and contemporaneous way God's presence. 
And I talked a little bit on the other side of that, and that was the uh, altar-making process. Now, you know, I'm not advocating that I visit you at your home and find some strange thing with birds' nests and uh, odd symbols in your backyard uh, full of food and rice. And I, No, 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 no. We're talking about the sacrificial offer, altars that were built by the patriarchs. And these altars were actually memory markers, event markers. They were meant to signify a spiritual event or transition or a massive moment. When Jacob dreams of Jacob's ladder, there's an altar. Uh, When Noah gets off the ark, there is an altar built. Some of these patriarchs took the time not just to remember, but to make sure that they would never forget. I think the contemporary version of that would be the discipline of journaling. I used to do it faithfully in high school, and I've started probably 50 times since. If anybody wants to buy some used journals with just a couple of pages that I will have torn out, uh, I got thousands of them, because I keep starting new journals only to do one or two days and say, ah, fooey with this, I don't have the time. And I think I need to just... (laughs) learn a more uh, expeditious process there. But nevertheless, the activity of remembering God's leading in our lives is very present because there are times, and there will be times again, when we really feel that God is not present. When we really feel that our prayers are not answered. When we really feel that we are alone in the universe. And when those times come, when those feelings come, and they do come and they will come, when those times come, it is absolutely essential that we have retained the capacity to remember and that we have marked those moments in our lives when we knew for certain that God was speaking and God was acting. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I come. I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure. What? safely to arrive at home. The other sacred doings had to do with the form of religion. Now, I could say more about this week, and this may not have exactly been in last week's uh, actual sermon, but it was part of the thought. We've taken on many forms in Adventism, and interestingly enough, they've had a cultural component generally, so they've become the object of focus and debate through much of my adulthood and late teenage years. So, as a denomination, we were really focused on uh, some interesting sort of practice. What constituted Sabbath keeping? Um, What was appropriate in the way of dress and adornment? What were uh, the right sorts of entertainments for a Christian to engage or pursue? And since that whole thing is just sort of massively blown up, we kind of land as uh, heaps all over the place, all over the map on that particular thing. Some of you are very comfortable with uh, the old standards, and some of you have way moved on long ago. But what was missing in all of that was a deeper connection to the doings or the abstainings in this case that inculcate a sense of God's power and presence in our lives that deepen within us a sense of purpose as Christians. 
And in the end, I think why so many Seventh-day Adventists left Adventism in the era I just described was because to be somebody who was vegetarian and didn't wear a wedding band and didn't go to the movies wasn't enough of a purpose in life. It wasn't enough of a justification for being what you were. And we weren't, we were so engaged in the sort of, the, 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 the layer of doings that we neglected what those doings were meant to inculcate in us. Hopefully today, we've adopted standards in our lives that mirror contemporary values, not to say uh, worldly values necessarily, but we've made our peace with our own standards on that in such a way that we've moved on to the greater issue of connectedness with God and with one another. And we've learned to pay attention to those things that deepen the sense of God's purpose and presence in our lives. So that was really the essence of last week. And then I got to thinking about my sermons in general and the sermonic process in general again and how it's, it's the art of advocating in some way for something or uh, persuading in some way or trying to give you an idea that's meant to revolutionize or change some idea of your life. That isn't to say you haven't signed up for it. You're here. But I began to wonder if there was another angle on this process because we're always encouraged in some way in, a, in some kind of aspect of performance. And I'm not even sure I can escape that in today's sermon. But I began to reflect on just how much grace God really has given us as a body. And I, I began to celebrate that. Not that I haven't in some ways in the past. I've, I've been variously aware, deeply aware, through the three years I've been here. But I, I began to think about all of the myriads of choices in life that you have and how many of you actually choose a significant portion of the time to make your place with God's people. That's just amazing and choose out of giving that significant portion of your time to volunteer and choose to serve and choose to teach and choose to use your gifts. I'm amazed when I consider the fact that you know we have families scattered, we have jobs that take us other places, we have vacation time and schedules we have all of these things, and yet out of a 290-member church, and you can give a 30-member cushion, people living away, people uh, really missing, whatever, we have a more than 50% weekly attendance for that group of people. It's pretty remarkable in today's day and age. I got to thinking about just how skilled some of you are at what you bring to the house of God and what you bring in the way of time and talent, and just felt a tremendous sense of thankfulness and joy. And so I guess in the end, I am going to try to persuade you of something. I am going to try to sell you uh, something new here today. But the thing that I want to give you, I hope, will be not something that you carry as a burden, but that you carry as a joy. Because what we find in today's story and I'll put a context on it in just a minute, is an affirmation 
of something very, very real. That God takes joy in you. And that the joy He takes in you becomes an incredible source of your strength. And that you will not feel the joy that He takes in you in the processes of sackcloth and ashes, to use a metaphor, in beating yourself up, in putting yourself down, in saying, oh, there's so much more. Or, yes, I heard you say thank you for this, but I did one thing and left off five things I was supposed to do. The joy of the Lord is going to be your strength because that's what's promised in circumstances much more dire than yours. Let me set the table. Ezra and Nehemiah were probably originally written over a period of 10 years, but in the early church, one book. That is to say the early centuries, 1st, 2nd, 3rd century, one book. If they were not one book, they were certainly known as two books, and both of them were called Ezra, Ezra 1 and Ezra 2, and later became known as Ezra and Nehemiah. The time of these, to put this in context for you, is about 444 B.C. In other words, somewhere between 450 and 430 B.C. Now, in 457 B.C., something really significant happens. Do you remember what happens in 457 B.C.? Anybody? The decree is issued to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. Do you remember that? It's important in our timelines of last day events and prophecy. 457 BC, the decree goes out to rebuild, and I will kindly accept your correction. Was it not Artaxerxes or Xerxes who issued this decree? I apologize, like three or four or five weeks ago, I forget, somebody came to me and said, you kind of mixed up a few names. You called Belshazzar, Belteshazzar, Anyway, my apologies, it happens from time to time. Okay, so Artaxerxes Xerxes issues this decree in 457 B.C. So you count backwards for B.C. So 456 is closer to us, 455 is closer to us, and so forth. It's a countdown rather than a count up. And so when we get to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, they are in Palestine, they are in Israel, they are in the midst of this rebuilding process. They've, they've been watching this take place. And the people are returning from captivity. Now, if you remember in Israel, uh, rather Israel returning from Egypt, they weren't a very uh, literate bunch. They weren't a very sophisticated group. They were not uh, strong practitioners of the worship of Yahweh. They had lost touch with much that they had been given from the patriarchal age. They were enslaved, they were impoverished, and they were broken people. And Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Numbers, these givings of the law, these structures that God gives Moses and the people, recreate a society, create a new society that can go forward. And it's a little different after the Babylonian captivity. It's not as long and it's not as harsh as what Israel endured under Egypt. 
But those scattered Jews now are returning to the homeland. Some of them have intermarried. Uh, some of them are, are coming back um, with different ideas. The diaspora has changed Judaism forever. The scattering of Jews has changed the people forever. And they need leadership and they need something to, to bring them back into a sense of a common, common group again, a people. And the people are gathered in Nehemiah's day in this story in Nehemiah and the law is read. And you heard that in the reading today that Janet gave us. The reading, uh, the people gathered and they were read to, it said, from sunup until noon. From the book of the law. I can't be precisely sure which book this is. Perhaps it was Deuteronomy. Perhaps it was uh, Isaiah. But that would have been described differently, I imagine, if it were Isaiah. But the people hear God's law, which for us in Western society, law has a whole other connotation. Okay? So I'm going to spend just a second here so before we move on. What do you think of when you think of law? Rules. Restrictions. I'm sorry? Punishments. One more? Say it again. Regulations. Thank you. Thank you. Regulations. Policing. Cops. Consequences. Judgment. When we think of law, we don't usually think in the Eastern mindset terms, do we? We think very Western. We think the law is somehow connected to a moral code. We think of moral code as more or less absolute. We think of violation of law as sin. In fact, that's our definition. Sin is transgression of the... That's the most common definition you hear in a Sabbath school class. I don't think it's entirely correct, but it is the most common one. Sin is the transgression or the violation of law, and then we have a very forensic sort of model of redemption. Christ died to pay the price for that violation of law. He's paying our ticket, basically. Right? So for us, the whole notion of law has sort of forensic overtone. It has a Western Roman overtone. But for people hearing the law in Nehemiah's day, it didn't have that tone. Think of the Psalms and David's words about the law. The law is what? Perfect. Enlightening the soul. Enlightening the eyes. Delighting the soul. David has so many praises to say for the law. Why? Because for the Jews, the law was the word of God. It wasn't about restrictions. It was about freedom. Do you understand that? When somebody drives the wrong way at 80 miles an hour down a freeway, what happens? Somebody gets killed, usually. 
Either the sheriff shoots the person driving the wrong way or they end up hitting somebody, don't they? You see, that law is not about restriction. It's not about punishment. It's not about anything but keeping you free from the utter chaos and destruction that happens when somebody goes the wrong way on a freeway at 80 miles an hour. And while we can see some laws that way, you know, we don't kill because we don't want to be killed, and, you know, some of those kinds of things that are pretty obvious to us, mostly we have a sort of, uh, we carry the burden of law. One of my mentors, Bailey Gillespie, tells the story of being in Israel, or maybe it's somebody else's story that he, he tells like it's his own story, but anyway, uh, being in Israel and seeing a boy with the scroll on his head and on his forearms and you know his shawl, his teeth, his uh, yarmulke, the whole getup, and, and carrying these things. And somebody says, isn't it a, a burden to carry all that around? And the boy replied, let me ask you a question. Is it a burden to carry a diamond? Of course, the tourist was stunned. I think Bailey, if it was Bailey's story, really, I think he was stunned. Is it a burden to carry a diamond? None of us have that view of law, probably. Here's this gorgeous gem, this priceless piece of compressed carbon, this thing from deep within the Earth's crust, this rarity. Is it a burden to carry that? Clearly not. To the contrary, they're a girl's best friend, so I'm told. My poor wife had to marry me on the word, silver and gold have I none, let alone diamonds. <laughs> ah, but there's a good woman. When the law was read to the people of Israel, they wept. They wept for three reasons that I can ascertain from the text. The first reason they wept, probably, I'm giving this my Western twist, but was probably conviction. Perhaps they had wandered not just far from Israel, but had wandered from the law and the God of the law, the God who gave it. The second thing that I know they were thinking was joy. Because a treasure had come back to them as a people. And the third thing that I know they were feeling and hearing was a sense of covenant. Because that's the other thing missing from our definition and understanding of law. Our definition of law, and my apologies to our, our favorite policeman here, our, our head deacon, we have this bad stereotype of law enforcement, for example, being punitive or picky about a detail of the law that may not have anything to do with circumstance or safety in our mind. Ever had that experience? Don't, don't raise your hand. It's not always that way. 
But sometimes we feel like it might be that way. I mean, you know, you, you sort of roll through, but really substantially stop and look at a stop sign, and the motorcycle policeman does a U-turn across two double lanes of traffic and two yellow lines to give you the ticket. Well, who's doing the damage here? And then when you go to pay it, and it's $318, now the law really doesn't look too good. Right? I tell too many traffic stories. I really have a good driving record. <laughs> the one I'm referring to here had to be at least 11 years ago. Okay, so, 10 if we're going to be precise. They're not thinking this way about law. They're not reading this and say, oh yeah, I forgot. Don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. Oof, did that last week. Better work on that one. This is not what they're thinking as they hear the law being read to them. What they are hearing is the renewal of covenant. Which means God is saying in the reading of the law to these people, I will be your God. And you, and you and all of you will be my people. Doesn't that give you chills? Gives me chills just saying it. It is a radical affirmation of belonging again to God. And it is a radical affirmation of belonging again to God in a place that has had such meaning for them in marking and remembering the presence of God. For here is where the temple was, where the Holy of Holy was, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the Shekinah light shone. This was where the presence of God had been. A restoration was coming. People are worshiping. They're, they're mourning what they have been missing and what is lost. And they're feeling perhaps, their sense of unworthiness, but they're also rejoicing in the return of this incredible gift. They're rejoicing. And in the words of Nehemiah, they are sent away. They are told to dry their tears. No sackcloth and ashes for you. Prepare for yourself sweet drink. We have it almost every potluck. It's pink, the Hawaiian, anyway. <laughs> Prepare for yourself sweet drink and a feast, good food. And share with those who have not. And go find your joy. Because the joy of the Lord is going to be your strength. You've been through a lot. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And some of you have been through a lot and some of you are going through a lot. Forget the sackcloth and ashes. Forget your failings. The joy of the Lord will be your strength. For today he declares, I am your God and you are my people.